Good morning, River Oaks. My name is Art Cash. I'm an elder and pastor here at the church, and we'll be in Titus 1, 5 through 9 this morning. So back in 2009, when I worked for Ruby Tuesday, I used to have regular one-on-ones with my chief people officer, Rob. And after a lot of time discussing through projects, discussing through work, we would we'd get to life. We'd be talking about how each other's families are doing, what's going on in our lives. So he was an elder at a large church in Knoxville. And in one of these conversations, when I, when I told him, hey, I've been nominated uh, to be an elder in my church, he kind of got this funny look on his face. He proceeded to tell me, you will hate it. He said, you'll, you'll hate it. He, he said he used to love church before becoming an elder. But eldership exposed him to like the, the political underbelly of how church is done. So it's pretty safe to say that, that Rob had some strong opinions. And, and I listened to them. I wanted to know, what was, he, was he right? What would it be like? It's, I'm encouraged to tell you this morning that, that my experience has been drastically different than his. Has it been challenging? Yes, has it tested my family in me? Yes. For the first couple of years, did it modify how my temper was in traffic? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm an elder. I can't do that. <laughs> Lots of impact here. But what I'd want you to know is I've experienced lengthy seasons of unity on the elder board, mutual encouragement, and the blessing of seeing God's work in and through this church. So all we have to do is look at our phone, turn on the TV, and we can see this week in real time the, the consequences, the sad consequences of foolish leadership. So my, my prayer this morning is that this passage would encourage you. It would encourage you as we see God's wisdom and how he designs his church to flourish and the first step towards that healthy church begins with its leadership. And that's, that's our main point. That elders who reflect the character of Christ are the first step in aligning the church to be healthy. So we'll see how our passage breaks out. That, that first, a healthy church is led by elders. We'll see that those elders must have integrity. And that followed with that, not only integrity, but they must hold firmly to God's word and, and be able to instruct in sound doctrine and contradict or instruct those who contradict it. So we'll see that as we get into our passage here. Let's read it, uh, Titus 1, and we're going to go all the way through 16. So I want you to see specifically, we're going to come back to this, I want you to see the contrast between the elders and the false teachers in Crete. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, 
empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Father, we we ask that you would help us this morning by your Spirit, that you would give us clarity on your Word, that you would challenge us through your Word, that you would encourage us through your Word. Father, I pray specifically for the elders in this church that you would equip us for the calling of eldership, for the sake of this body, for the health of this church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, why did Paul direct Titus to remain in Crete? For him to put what remains in order. We see that in verse 5. We know from verses 10 through 16 how chaotic, how disordered it is in Crete. We know that that disorder is damaging the church and that Titus has his hands full in putting that in order. So anyone that spent any time in leadership knows that this is the case. You know how hard it is to take over something that's broken, taking over a broken restaurant, okay, at Ruby's or a broken district. It, it was always a challenge to put what was broken back in order. So you, you know that the first step there is it's not strategies. It's not processes. The first step in putting something in order is to establish leadership that reflects the values and the culture that you want. That's what Peter Drucker meant when he said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. A culture in any organization is set and maintained by the leadership. And what we find out in Titus is that God came up with that idea long before Peter Drucker did. So again, verse 5, we see this phrase, set in order. That's important because the rest of the book, Paul is telling Titus how to set the churches in Crete in order to make them sound to make them stable, to make them healthy. You'll recall the phrase set in order is where we get that, the term ortho or straighten, rightly aligned. So what's Paul's first direction? Titus is to appoint elders in each town. So a healthy church is led by elders. The first thing we have to, to answer, though, is what is an elder? Who is an elder? And I don't want to assume that everybody knows what an elder is. I grew up in a a church with a senior pastor, led by one man, essentially, with some deacons and committees. Wasn't sure exactly how that was structured, but it seemed like a one-man show. My my first exposure to what I was told was was an elder was when I was 14. My dad became a Mormon, okay, and these, these guys would come over to the house on their bikes in short sleeve dress shirts and, and ties. I kind of think that's an oxymoron. It's a long sleeve dress shirt, yes. Short sleeve dress shirt, no. Short sleeve button up, yes. Regardless, these young guys were on their bikes 
riding over to my dad's house, okay? They barely looked 20 years old, and, and they had on their little name tag, Elder. So I'm looking at it going, this is Elder Young and Elder Younger. This makes no sense <laughs> at all to me, all right? So I was, I was a little skeptical when I, I showed up at River Oaks and, and heard the term Elder. I'm like, what, what, what is this? I mean, Bob doesn't look that, that old to me. How is he an, an elder? So what I learned is that elder is, is this word straight from the Bible. Okay, it's a title or a role for men. Not every man, but specific men given by God to lead his church. These are not men appointed by some outside authority, but raised up from within the church and recognized by the church. We see that elders is plural. So it's not one man, but multiple men who are both called and qualified to oversee and steward. We see that in verse 7. Oversee and steward God's church. What that, those terms mean, to lead, to protect, to serve, to love, to care for, to equip, to teach the body. Now, there, there may be a couple of red flags that go up in, in some minds this morning. For those whose past church experience was defined by domineering, controlling, distant style of leadership, I, I'm sorry that that happened to you. It's not right. You, you may hear order, you may hear elders, you may hear doctrine, and you fear that this sermon is just another smokescreen for another aspect or another group of people in your life that want to control you. Please, please listen to the, the word of God. When, when Paul says things like order and sound doctrine, he does not mean, he does not mean constricting straitjacket of, of uniformity. On the contrary, if you have everything and everyone in perfect uniform, including speech, behavior, and doctrine, what you have is a cult, not a church. The order that Paul is talking about in verse 5, the sound doctrine, that he's talking about in verse 9. It is not to stunt and constrict the church, but to set it right. To set it right so that what, what's broken can thrive and strengthen and flourish. The second objection, it might be more challenging because our, our hearts line up with the culture and tell us the same lie. The lie that, that any authority is bad authority. The lie that in order for me to be truly happy, I must reject any authority other than my own. Now, we, we can see this lie rear its head in our hearts over the smallest things. Has anybody ever been shushed in the library? <laughs> that was whispering. Or you're on the, you're on the plane and the flight attendant's like, over the, over the nose. With the mask. Our, our hearts are ready to rebel, not just at tyrannical authority, but, but annoying everyday authority to which we react with, Who are you to tell me what to do? We also have to confront the pervasive lie that strong male leadership can only be toxic. In a culture that is increasingly confused about what a man is, it's crystal clear on its disdain for competent male leadership. So what do we do? 
I mean, the answer is not to surrender to the culture. The answer is not to bounce off the lie and become some caricature of a, of a chest-thumping masculine male. That's not it. The answer is to submit to the truth we find in the Word of God. Thankfully, in the wisdom of God, he shows us exactly what strong, godly men should look like in this passage. We see a man who is present and actively leading and discipling, loving and serving. A man who can be relied upon and trusted because he's utterly relying upon and trusting Christ. So I trust it gives us a clue towards answering our next question. What qualifies a man to be an elder? What kind of man is to be trusted to, to oversee, to steward the bride of Christ? Let's, let's see six, six through eight here. If, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So honestly, this could be the part where it's, it's like ah, time for me to check out. I'm not, I'm not an elder. This is on him. Ark's preaching to like nine or ten guys here. Uh, you know, that, that, that verse uh, six, man, that's, that, that's his house, not mine. Verses seven and eight, that's, that's his character, not mine. So I, I've got a couple appeals for you. I would ask, I would suggest to you, it's absolutely in your interest and your family's interest, your church family, their interest, to know exactly, exactly what to look for in the men that you nominate and confirm to not only lead and serve you, but the ones who are spiritually responsible for you. It is in your best interest, in the person sitting next to you, to know what type of man should be leading Second, many of the same qualifications that we see for elders, we find these as requirements elsewhere in the book. All you have to do is turn one page over to Titus 2, and you find older men, younger men, older women, younger women, all of us. Similar requirements overlap in what it looks like to be a Christian. So what we can take away from that is not everyone will be an elder, but everyone should aspire to be elder-like. That's what we're seeing here. But specifically for the elder, we find in verse 6 and 7, this, this term, this phrase, above reproach. It's repeated, so we need to pay attention to it. The character of the elder in the home and his reputation in the community are to be above reproach. Your translation may even say blameless, Honestly, standing up here before you, that is intimidating. Above reproach. Who, who has the audacity to go, yep, uh, above reproach, you can count on it. Before a cup of coffee with my family, above reproach. Okay? In Walmart on Saturday, look inside my heart, blameless. <laughs> who, can, who can say that? Okay? We, I see these terms and I want to soften the blow. 
Maybe Paul just means sometimes. Maybe he just means mostly above reproach. Instead, he doubles down in in verse 7 and adds, must, must be above reproach. Titus, in the home and in the community, these men must be above reproach. What do we do with this? We have to define terms. We know what above reproach cannot mean. It can't mean perfection. We know blameless cannot mean sinless. If it does, then everyone is disqualified, including Paul, who describes himself as the chief of sinners in his first letter to Timothy. So what does it mean for an elder to be above reproach? It means this, and I think this is critical to get, not just for this sermon, but for us as a church. To be above reproach means here's a man who loves Jesus Christ and his life shows it. That's what it means. Above reproach means there's a consistency between what he believes and how he behaves. Above reproach means there's integrity between his public life and his private life because he treasures Jesus. In fact, it's by his integrity and his character that he earns your trust. You're not to submit yourself to any man. No, you are to submit yourself to an elder with integrity and character type man. We can't treat this section of Scripture differently than we would the rest of the Bible. And what I mean is we we don't take it out of context. Most of the time, this section just gets picked up and it's reduced to just this checklist of of character qualifications for an elder. Your Bible may even have a subtitle. It says qualifications for elders. Little subtitles not inspired. (laughs) This passage is not less than qualifications for elders, but it's so much more. If we make these verses only a checklist, we miss why. Why is Paul telling Titus this is so important to appoint men like this? The elders are to be a direct contrast to the false teachers in Crete. The false teachers' lives, what do they reflect? Rebellion. They reflect empty talk, deception. Their teaching upsets entire families in verse 11. Their lives reflect a lack of self-control, verse 12. Perhaps the most obvious contrast to the elders' integrity is their lives reflect, in verse 16, the hypocrisy of saying, I know God, and then we see by their works that they don't know him at all. Their lives are detestable and hypocritical. Businesses, organizations, homes, churches, you, you know this intuitively, They never lack for influence or leadership. Someone's leading. Someone is influencing, whether formally or informally. So the question is not, do you have leadership? The question is, what type of leadership do you have? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it leading you toward Christ or away from him? The churches in Crete, they they face a critical moment. If they follow the false teachers, they will grow up crooked, bent, curved in on themselves, following men who turn away from the truth. Verse 14. So ensuring that the right men lead the church, it was a matter of spiritual life and death in Crete, just as it is in Maryville. So how do we make that determination? 
there's some, there's some tempting things, right? Is that, is that man, uh, do, I, do I like him? Is he funny? Is he popular? What, what gifts does he have? What strengths does he have? He's a pretty good businessman. I think that he would make a good elder. Charismatic, he's got it. I like that guy. That's not it. Those things might be present, but they're not qualifiers. The church is to determine who should be an elder based on character, not charisma. Verse 6 tells us to ask, what's he like in the home? A husband of one wife literally means a one-woman man. Is he faithful? Is there ongoing evidence that he consistently loves and leads his wife? His children are, are believers or are faithful. That they're being raised and discipled by this man in and towards the faith. Debauchery and insubordination, that, that means that the children who are still in the home under the authority of their father, they're not prone to excess. I think the KJV may say riot or open rebellion. Now, there may be times where it feels like a riot, an open rebellion in your home. The key is watching how the elder type man responds to those times. It is not during times of Norman Rockwell, placid, familial bliss that we see a man's character. We know this. It's during the crisis and moments of stress that when character is both formed and revealed. So if, if you grew up in the 70s and the 80s, maybe early 90s, you're familiar with this thing called a, a glamour shot. Okay? If you're not, you can also get your hands on one of our earlier uh, church directories, <laughs> and you can get a good idea of what was happening with, with a glamour shot, the soft lighting. Hey, big hair is, was optional. Do you remember the part was the polyester windbreakers that were so bright, and they kind of swished with, with the mall walkers, okay? There was like this, this thing there. So, it, you know, that's, that's the, the glamour shot. For you younger folks, you, you've got phones with any number of, of filters that you can use to wipe away the, the blemishes, to, to make you look perfect. You've got filters that help you with these flawless selfies. Why? To smooth out the wrinkles and get rid of the blemishes to make you appear better than reality. And brothers and sisters, we're not looking for men whose lives appear better than reality. Okay, but, but on the other hand, my wife has this like makeup mirror, okay? You ladies know what I'm talking about. The one with the concave mirror with the harsh light around it I, to, I guess, apply makeup. I don't know how you ladies do it. I looked in that thing one time. <laughs> I had no idea about all these red lines on the sides of my nose. I'm like, I'm not looking at that thing again. In fact, can we, can we have some softer light even here in the bathroom, please? That, that makeup mirror, it is to show everything. We need that type of light on the elder type man for the sake of the health of the church. To see the good and the bad. How does he handle his home when things aren't perfect? How does he handle an argument with his wife? Does he, does he ignore her? 
Does he try and control her? Or does he pursue her with love? How does dad handle it when Johnny's melting down? Does he lose it? Does he escalate? Or does he bring calm to chaos? More importantly, how does he bring Christ to his family in their worst moments? Why does that matter? Who cares what's happening behind closed doors? It matters because you need to know that in your worst moment, in your weakest moment, in your ugliest moment, that you have an elder who will pursue you in love and bring Christ to you. You need to know it. Verses 7 and 8 give us vices that should be, should be absent from an elder's life and virtues that should be present. The emphasis of these characteristics seems to be self-control or self-discipline. As Chester puts it, if a man cannot lead himself, how will he lead the church? Even though self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, I feel the tension of, the, of this text. Is, it's Paul's emphasis on all of these outward behaviors. Why is he so focused on the fruit and not the root? Now, before we start applying this text to ourselves, because it's tempting to go, okay, uh, Let's see, verse 7, how, how prideful is arrogance? Um, how many times a week am I quick-tempered or not? How many drinks means drunkard? Uh, what, greedy? Ah, I'm not sure. Before we do any of that, we have to think of the context. What's at stake in Crete is the health of the church, and what's on display are two distinct ways of living. The false teachers show one way of life, through their actions, their beliefs. The elder-type men with their lives show or even prove there is a better way. As their lives reflect the character of Christ, it gives the church hope. The life of the elders should give the church hope that the gospel changes people. That's the point. So, so we've, been, we've been sharing testimonies in our growth group. And Heather and I shared this last Wednesday night. In, in light of this passage, I, I wanted our group to know, I want you to know, that the gospel of Jesus Christ absolutely changes people. It, it's not an embellishment to look at verses 7 and 8 and to tell you that I checked every box on the vice list. I lacked every virtue on the, the spiritual fruit list. For the first 30 years of my life, that's what it looked like. In every way, I was the opposite of an elder-type man until Jesus used this church and the elders in it to change everything for me and my family. My first meaningful conversation with Chris Kawa went like this. Here, here, here's Chris. How are you? Here's me. Not great. Here's Chris. Okay, question mark. <laughs> here, 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 here's, here's me. I'm angry all the time. I yell at my wife. I curse a lot. I'm pretty sure I drink too much. 
here's Chris. We should get lunch. <laughs> we should get lunch. I don't share that to, to glorify a sordid past or to credit Chris for doing something extraordinary. Do you know what he was doing? He was being an elder. That's what he was doing. I share it because it's true and it should give you hope. I share it because I believe it's a direct application of the book of Titus. You see, Jesus, he did not come to make good people better or to make decent people into good leaders. He came to make a Cretan a Christian. That's why he came. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. First 30 years, check. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, so merciful. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it keeps getting better, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is true. The Father is good. Jesus saves sinners, and the Holy Spirit renews. You can put your hope in him. You can follow an elder who will point you to him. So a healthy church has elders who, who firmly hold to the trustworthy word. Not only will a healthy church have elders with integrity, but in order for the church to flourish, it must have elders who, verse 9, hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able, may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Trustworthy word we see later, even in verse 9, he describes it as sound doctrine. Sound being where we get the word healthy. So what is sound doctrine? What's the trustworthy word? So right after, one of the clearest summaries of the gospel in all of Scripture that I just read to you from Titus 3, I want you to look at verse 8. Titus 3, 8, after all of that, here's who you were, but God, here's what he did, here's who you are. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, uses that same term, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The whole point of the book of Titus, true faith will lead to real fruit. Gospel, then obedience. The grace that saved you will sanctify you. That's the difference between true teaching and the false teaching that Titus must correct. The difference between right or wrong, straight or crooked, healthy or dead. I mean, it seems kind of simple. Titus, just, just get in there and be gospel-centered. I mean, like, you know, some guys came up with this thing, T4G, Gospel Coalition, like back 15, 20 years ago. Titus, just get in there. Be gospel-centered. You know, preach Christ and Him crucified. Titus. You should teach that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That Titus, that's what you need to do. It's never that simple. 
Not that simple, is it? And Titus is a, is a Gentile Christian. We know from Galatians 2 that as a matter of faithfulness to the gospel of salvation through Jesus alone, that Paul refused to have Titus circumcised. So here's Titus trying to minister to a church made up of new believers, Gentile and Jew. But verse 10 tells us who he's up against. Empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So here are these guys saying, you can picture them. You know, they probably got some cool robes. They might even have some frontlets hanging out. You know, when they're like, listen, Titus, we've been doing this thing since Abraham. We've, we've been on this train since, since Moses. We've got the traditions. We've got the commands. We've got the proof of our own righteousness. Who are you to tell us what to do? Preaching and teaching sound doctrine is always a challenge, and it's only done by the grace of God. Who are you to tell us what to do, they say. So that they would probably preach this passage, the false teachers would probably preach this passage this way. Men, you are doing terrible. Let's start with you guys getting your families here on time, men. Okay? You, you've got to try harder to be above reproach. If you want God to save you, much less put you in leadership, here's three strategies that you need to do to be humble and patient like us. If you try your hardest, you can make it into our inner circle and God will be pleased with you. Based on your strength and your effort, we'll make you elders in this church and everybody can say, look at that guy. I want to be like him. I want to imitate his righteousness. How about self-righteousness? May that never be. No one can live up to the false doctrine of trusting their own efforts and goodness to earn God's approval or keep it. You can't live up to it. Teach that and you damn yourself and those who follow you. Elders of River Oaks, growth group leaders, Sunday school teachers, disciplers, parents, your call is this. You are to give instruction in sound doctrine. It's by grace that you are saved. It's by grace that you're sanctified. You cannot earn the approval that Jesus freely gives. You are an heir. So your good works are those of an adopted son and daughter who already has the love and the pleasure of his father. Set your heart upon Christ and he will make your character more like his own. In fact, in order for River Oaks to not only survive but thrive, you must insist Titus 3.8, on these things. Insist on it. If there is an elder that ever stands up here and preaches something other to you than that sound doctrine, remove him. Your elders must declare this truth. Elder, you must exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus 2.15. This is not just for leaders. This is for you when you go and get a cup of coffee with a, another Christian friend and you ask the question, how are you doing? How's your soul? And you point each other to Christ. That is sound doctrine. 
But what about those who, who don't listen? What about those who disregard the trustworthy word? Elders, you must rebuke those who contradict it. Titus 1.9. Tim Chester describes what this looks like. A loving leader will put your eternal destiny over your present comfort. He may not always say the nicest thing, but he will always say the necessary thing, and it will be said from love. When a, when a Christian rebukes or corrects anyone, it should be from love. For the elder, the rebuke must come from love, both for the person that's being corrected and for the church. And that may sound right, but how, how do we know that? So look at Titus 1, 12, and 13. What is he to do with those lazy, lying, evil beasts? He's to rebuke them sharply. Why? So they'll leave mad? No, so that they may be sound in the faith. Not so you can prove you're right and they're wrong, but out of care for them. So they will confess and repent of sin and turn to Jesus. What a loving motive and encouraging outcome. So after I unloaded all my sin on, on Chris that day, he really did take me to lunch. Now, I used, to, I used to joke that during that conversation, he John Pipered me before I knew who John Piper was. Okay, he, he would ask me questions I'd never been asked before. Why was I trading the treasure I could have in Christ for junk here on earth? Why was I giving up eternal pleasure that I could have in, in Jesus for the temporary and fleeting pleasures of sin? I don't know, Chris. I don't know how to answer that. No one had ever asked me that before. But what I've realized from this passage is that Chris and later Bob Pear, it was like Monday mornings with Bob, Tuesday mornings with, with Chris, as they discipled me, they weren't, they weren't pipering me. They were Titus 1-9-ing me. Okay, let's just turn it into what it is. They were, they were discipling me through Titus 1.9. They were instructing me. They were rebuking me with sound doctrine so that I might grow healthy in the faith because they loved me. That's what an elder does. So if I have ever preached a word to you that points you to Christ, if you and I have ever had a conversation that encouraged you in your faith, if I've ever served you in any way that helped you in the Lord, then praise God for the obedience of these two elder-type men who took Titus 1, 9, and 13 seriously. Who shepherd accreted into a Christian. That's what they did. So that's an example of instruction and rebuke and sound doctrine going well. But what about when the person being rebuked doesn't respond with confession and repentance? When they continue to contradict and be divisive, what is the elder to do? One nine gives the answer. Calvin puts it this way. The elder ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. And the scripture voice for warning the wolf is supplied in Titus, Titus 3, 10, and 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. When elders are holding firmly to the trustworthy word, they are able to tenderly encourage the weak and strongly rebuke the wolves. For the elders, this is a both and, not an either or. Different voices, but the same motive, love. The elder shows his love for the church when he drives the wolf away. Now, I could easily stay theoretical on what this looks like. I give you scriptural examples. But for guests and and new members of River Oaks, I want you to personally understand what's at stake in rebuking and warning the wolf. If you were here in 2019, you know the importance of elders protecting the flock from wolves. It's during that time and through that situation, the Lord showed me that spiritual warfare is absolutely real and that demonic attack is not theoretical. I could tell you about the elders' time, energy, and prayer defending the church against ludicrous attacks. I could tell you about the emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical toll of the victims of vicious slander or the hours of navigating conversations with those upset by the lies. I could talk about the feelings of of relief and vindication as the elders were able to share exactly what was happening with you at the members' meeting. I want you to know at the root of that, there was insidious, false doctrine. It was this, that no matter how false, how outlandish, the lived experience trumped objective reality and truth. That had to be rebuked. For those who are not here, what I want you to know and pray that you would come to experience is that you have a group of men called by God and equipped by His Spirit to love you fiercely and act with integrity even when it costs. What I want you to know after years of serving with these men is they will faithfully shepherd you, not so you would make much of them, but because they know they are loved by the Good Shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. So if I cross paths with with Rob again, I want him to know that my experience has been drastically different than his. River Oaks is not our church. It belongs to Jesus. As elders, we freely and joyfully submit to Christ. He is the head of this church. We know that any order we bring, any integrity we have, any sound doctrine we teach, it's a gift from his hand. So as an elder, I stand here with humility, hope, and trust in his spirit spirit as we lead. We want to lead in such a way you continue to grow spiritually and mature in Christ towards your health. I want to see this for this generation and the generations to come according to his will. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your design and how you set up the church for order, how you set it up to be sound and healthy. 
Father, I pray that we would submit to you in your design with joy from your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray specifically for encouragement and equipping for each elder who, who has served, who is serving, and who you will call to serve. Father, I pray that you would encourage us as a body to mutually disciple one another, to point out spiritual gifts, to, to be willing to confront sin in each other's lives because we love one another, that you would do this by your spirit. Father, I, I pray for your blessing upon this church as we seek to live in light of your scripture. Father, we confess that we do all of this covered by the blood of your Son and dwelt by your Spirit, apart from whom we have no hope. It is, it is all you. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.